Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily, newly designed China Access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our website at subchina.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to today from Chandler, Arizona. Today on Seneca, I am delighted to welcome Sylvia Lintner, Associate Professor of Information at the University of Michigan School of Information. She's also Associate Professor of Art and Design at the Penny W. Stamps School of Art and Design and Assistant Professor of Digital Studies. If that weren't enough, she's also spent the last year teaching at NYU Shanghai, and she's now in Dali Yunnan, which is one of the loveliest places that I can think of in the world, though she's been sort of dodging the old Shanghai horrors. (laughs) Sylvia is the author of a highly original book called Prototype Nation, China and the Contested Promise of Innovation, which some of you may recall was recommended on this program back in March, I think it was, by Maria Repnikova. Maria's recommendation prompted me, of course, to buy the book and to read it. And it's, it's really a fascinating look at not only how China fits into sort of the overall global tech production landscape, but also about how certain approaches that we associate with technology production uh, shape and and maybe even define China's style of, of governance, its statecraft. Some of her previous work has focused on the fascinating city of Shenzhen and on the emergence of the maker movement there, centered in that preeminent Chinese hardware hub. Sylvia Lintner, welcome to Seneca, and thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Kaiser. It's such a delight to be joining you today. So listeners, uh, just a quick aside. It's possible that some months from now, you might see Sylvia answer a few of these same questions on a certain American public television station. That is because Sylvia was gracious enough to sit for an interview for the long-running science show Nova on PBS, a show that I grew up watching uh, and which is still beloved by by many, many people in the United States and around the world. I have been uh, working on a couple of films for that series, along with the director, David Borenstein, and a great team of China-based colleagues. And it was those China-based colleagues that did the interview with Sylvia because I was at a wedding in Madison, Wisconsin, and I was unable to zoom in and ask the questions as I had originally planned to. But I am really glad that I get to do this now uh, in a different medium. Uh, but you know, happily, we are able to publish the full answers instead of just the little snippets that you know television perforce uh, requires us to to uh, keep it to. So what follows, and you know, I think it's it's true. What, what follows are basically the same questions I had originally written for that Nova interview. So Sylvia, uh, once again, thanks so much. We were really interested in talking to you for Nova because you are somebody who has thought really deeply 
about the relationship between technology production and, and governance. And that, that is something that I think a lot of Americans believe they have a pretty good idea about. I mean, we find several different narratives about how governance, you know, how government or regime type or, or policy actually either impedes or facilitates tech innovation. Uh, now, there's like this dominant kind of Silicon Valley, rugged individualist libertarian ethic that seems to be, you know, alive and well in some parts of America and, and really beyond. And that is, you know, I think we all know it's, it's kind of hostile to regulation. It just wants the low corporate tax rate and, and as little interference as possible. It's really laissez-faire. Uh, but my sense is that there's also a growing interest in what the government can and should do, not only to protect consumers and, and to safeguard privacy, you know, that's maybe something we mostly agree on, uh, but also to nurture nat- national champions even, or and to, to fund R&D. Uh, we all know there's this CHIPS Act and uh, the Innovation and Competition Act uh, in, in the U.S. House of Representatives right now for, for the, the CHIPS Act. Uh, there are also those who want to see government taking a role in, you know, forcing open other markets or in enforcing like reciprocity against countries like China that, that block uh, a lot of American products from being able to compete there. And of course, there are a lot of people who would like to see government just generally take on big tech and, and, and you know, be more forceful about uh, antitrust. So Sylvia, this audience for Nova, and I mean, maybe even some listeners to this podcast are pretty familiar with these different narratives around tech innovation in China. But as I said, you know, you are somebody who has just been on the ground in places like Shenzhen. Uh, you know it really well. Uh, we've gone somehow from this idea that China can't innovate at all because it's not democratic to somehow China is out innovating us and is, is going to eat our lunch because also because it's non-democratic. So at a, a kind of 30,000 foot level, how, how do you make sense of this? What happened to flip the switch? Yeah, thank you, Kaiser. I think that's that's such an important question. And what is uh, crucial, I think, for us to consider when we think through what has shifted in a public imagination about China, right? As you were saying, China was long thought of as, and even just eight years ago, China was often thought of as a place that either cannot innovate at all, or as a place that is copying the United States. And what we've really witnessed over the last eight to 10 years is a drastic shift of how China is viewed, both in a sort of broader public imagination when it comes to technology, um, but also by policymakers. I still remember very vividly in 2014 when I was traveling in Europe, I was approached by policymakers there, German-speaking policymakers, who used to often ask me questions as someone teaching in the United States. Oh, how can we replicate Silicon Valley in Europe? How can we build, you know, I'm originally from Austria. They would say, how can we build the Silicon Valley of Vienna? And in 2014, the question was suddenly, how can we uh, build the Shenzhen of Austria? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So we might wonder what happened within a very short time span that this idea about specifically Shenzhen, but also China broadly began shifting in, in the broader imagination. And what I argue in the book is really that we have to look back at what was happening in the years following the 2007 and 8 financial crisis. Hmm. So this was a moment when especially in the United States, but also to a degree in Europe, people working in technology, in design, in engineering, began thinking, I would argue, for the first time more critically about digital technology. So when you think back about the 1990s, right, and even the 2000s, social media, digital technology, the internet was really thought of as a vehicle for social change, for positive change. And following the 2007 and 8 financial crisis, for the first time, people began noticing how technology had become complicit in things like ruthless capitalist value accumulation, sort of mm. thing, or more simply put, just making money for a small elite that is savvy with finance speculation. So this was the first time where people in the tech industry itself began doubting these earlier promises 
that uh, people had long sort of associated with with technology. And that sort of doubt over technological promise was really accelerating in the years of 2013, 14, 15, and 16, as more and more people were critically thinking about technology, labor, you know, think about Amazon warehouses or Uber. People really began thinking more critically about how technology was actually accelerating and enabling a form of labor exploitation that was unheard of before because we had thought about technology as bringing about a creative class, the empowerment of people to live better lives and to work um, freely wherever they wanted, right? So it was in this very moment where people first in the tech industry, but then also more broadly, media began picking up on these more broader sort of critiques of the tech industry, what we now often think is the tech lash, right? Mm. So it was in this moment of the tech lash of people doubting these early technological promises that China's image in the global sort of um, story around technology began shifting. So people began turning to Shenzhen and specifically China as a place that hadn't quite been co-opted by the tech industry and things like finance speculation quite the same way. Like Shenzhen at that time was really seen as a place that was sort of a counterculture on a mass scale where people were tinkering in manufacturing. They were resisting corporate monopolies like Apple. In fact, they were hacking these devices to make their own sort of copycat products. And people in the tech industry were celebrating that. They were saying, look, this is... This is um, a region that has still escaped this kind of reach of of Silicon Valley and how Silicon Valley has really become deeply intertwined with um, investment capital. And what is is really interesting to to look at is, of course, how China's image has again shifted more recently. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So now we more often hear stories about China as the surveillance state, China as a techno-authoritarian place that leaves no escape from a kind of data-driven form of control. And also here we might ponder again, how is it possible that within a very short time span of just a couple of years, the image has again so drastically shifted from a place that in 2014-15 was suddenly celebrated as this kind of vehicle to recuperate the broken promises of Silicon Valley to suddenly being seen with so much suspicion. So it's really important for us to both study, of course, the realities on the ground of how technology policy has changed in in China, but also really to pay attention to how in somewhat even arbitrary ways, sometimes that image of China in a broader Western imagination is shifting and how that image is often too simplistic in terms of accounting for the actual reality on the ground. Absolutely. That, that's a fantastic explanation. And I think that going all the way back to the financial crisis is important. I guess I would have dated it without having read your book. I would have probably you know, started to, to see the shift happen a little later than, than uh, what you've identified. And I, I kind of, when I've written about this before, I've tended to look at two narratives that flipped. One, I could call sort of the emancipatory narrative, this idea, as you said, that, you know, social media and the the digital revolution was going to be a force uh, for emancipation. And that also included political emancipation from, you know, authoritarian governments. And we all thought, I mean, that was sort of the motto, right, of the Arab Spring, right? And I I always had sort of thought that the reason for disillusionment with that one, well, it it was a few pretty easily identified events. It was like the the failure of so many of the Arab Spring and color revolutions, the Snowden revelations in 2013, then, you know, of course, Russian hacking in, uh, and, you know, Russian election interference in European elections in, in 2015 and then in the U.S. election in 2016. And then, of course, things like the uh, Cambridge Analytica scandal. So, and then I, I, I but I was really, that, that one seemed explicable to me, but the other one that was, less understandable was the one that you've just talked about more, which was the that innovation narrative where, you know, China was sort of regarded as unable to innovate. And suddenly, you know, as you say, you know, these European governments are saying, how do we create the Shenzhen of Austria in Vienna? Uh, so it's fascinating. Uh, you're absolutely right. Your, your book, Prototype Nation, argues 
that China itself is, well, a, a prototype. Uh, you said that a nation can and probably should function as a prototype that, you know, China has, contrary to expectation, actually made itself into, you know, an alternative to existing models of modern, you know, technological pro- progress, that it's a prototype. What would you identify as the key components that made this possible? I mean, it seems like it was pretty contingent to me, like it was a, a confluence of a whole bunch of different factors, like, you know, the SEZ status that Shenzhen had, uh, the major Taiwan ODMs suddenly, you know, setting up shop there in southern China, uh, attracting all these component manufacturers, you know, and and access to Hong Kong capital. It, it seemed, was it more deliberate or was it more contingent? Contingency is such an important word here because often uh, people, uh, you know, we tend to forget how important historical processes are like Shenzhen's uh, status as a laboratory, as a special economic zone in the 1980s for how we should think about Shenzhen today. So I'm really glad you're bringing up this notion of, of contingency. But let me back up maybe for a second about this idea of, of the nation as a, as a prototype. So I approached this topic through the study of a very contemporary phenomenon at that time, the maker movement. Mm. The maker movement was really something that spread around the globe in these years following the 2007 and 8 financial crisis, peaking around 2010 and 12 with big scale events, so-called maker fairs happening in major cities all over the all over the world, really. And what what these events were all about was that people, um, partially people who came out of technology, but also people who came out of more traditional um, industrial production kind of backgrounds, so think um, chip manufacturing or even large-scale manufacturing itself, um, they began uh, celebrating a form of technology production that was open source. In other words, that a form of technology production that was made available to anyone. So the, the, the one of the fundamental promises of the maker movement and the reason why it became such a global phenomenon was that the people who, who advocated for it argued that the testing and modeling of a technological alternative, so prototyping, so to say, right? Prototyping is all about testing and modeling a new technological project, a, a technological mm-hmm. alternative that is different from what, we, what we're doing right now, right? It's, it's a very common process in, in any sort of engineering project, right? So these people argue that this process of prototyping should no longer be reserved for scientists or for engineers, for elites, right? It should be available to everyone. Mm. And people who were active in that movement began turning to China and specifically Shenzhen as the ultimate laboratory for prototyping and for delivering on this promise that prototyping should be democratized, that it should be made available to everyone. And this idea that Shenzhen itself constituted and with its China constituted a unique laboratory to not only prototype in your garage, or in like a tiny hacker space, but actually prototype at the level of industrial production at the city, at the level of the city, that began uh, drawing a lot of attention first by investors. People began setting up incubator spaces in Shenzhen that focused specifically on that promise. But it also eventually drew in politicians. And the most crucial year for that, you know, you you mentioned a couple of of years earlier, the Snowden revelations in 2013, Russian hacking 2015, Cambridge Analytica 2016-17, right? So these these were kind of from an American perspective, what happened with regards to how technology was perceived by a broader public. What happened in those same years, around the same time in 2015, was that the prime minister of China at the time, Premier Li Keqiang visited a tiny makerspace in Shenzhen. He also visited Huawei, of course, and a big investment firm. But he went to that small hackerspace and declared that this form of prototyping that people in that tiny space did should become a model for the nation. 
should become a prototype, so to say, for the nation as a whole. And he declared that that particular promise of democratized prototyping would enable Chinese citizens and specifically young Chinese people to transform themselves from an earlier version of engineering to something who to into someone who was an entrepreneurial change maker. So someone who would start their own businesses, who wouldn't um, passively execute someone else's vision, but who would take matters into their own hands and design and implement their own prototypes, and in doing so, also change the nation and the image of the nation. Um, so this idea that by prototyping yourself into an entrepreneurial change maker, you can also prototype the nation anew and create a new form of what the nation means, a new model that could be exported. For instance, how China is being perceived in Africa or in other regions along its Belt and Road Initiative was really um, crystallized in that year of 2015. This was the moment where tech entrepreneurship through this sort of promising story of making became enshrined in a series of technology policies focused on innovation and entrepreneurship at the time. And these policies are still with us today. They're still with us today. Mm. They have, they're shaping also in our, in dialogue with current policies on this digitization of China or the data-driven kind of governance approach that we see now. But it was really in 2015 that the government appropriated this idea that prototyping should be or could be something that happens on a society level, hmm. that by transforming citizens into technological entrepreneurs, we can transform society as a whole. Now, to what extent was this call by Li Keqiang taken up by other prominent government figures? To what extent was it? You said, you know, there were policies that, that made their way into, into law, but was this suddenly on the front pages of Renmin Jibal? Was this suddenly something that had an impact on the way that local governments directed investment, the way that universities uh, ran their engineering departments? Was it, how did that change manifest in other sectors? Yeah, exactly. So what happened in the two years that followed, so 2016 and 17, is that you saw a lot of regional governments. So think city level governments or even, um, of course, provincial level governments, but even district level governments began allocating existing resources. And this is a very common phenomenon, of course, as you know, Kaiser in, in China, where Beijing sets a new policy and then local regional governments compete over who implements it best right. because that enables politicians to advance their careers. So let's say the Shenzhen becomes known as the city government that implemented China's um, innovation policy best. You know, it's it's um, a career trajectory for the mayor or for, for the province level um, government officials to advance. And so this also happened in this case that governments began implementing this policy using their existing resources. So Beijing didn't even have to allocate funding for this. People were using their existing um, resources to set up so-called mass maker spaces or chuanke kongjian in Chinese, which could be translated into either a creative space or an incubator space or a maker space. They began setting them up in shopping malls, in libraries, in mm -hmm, high schools. Mm -hmm. I've visited many of these uh, spaces all over the country. And um, supposedly there were like many thousands of such spaces in existence at one point, two years later. And it was really um, appropriated in that sense as, as a way to get people to think differently about education. This was a moment where people really began thinking about the role technology and specifically technology production could play in educating Chinese citizens. So um, mm. uh, thinking of what would a future generation um, of people look like if rather than being really good at just math or engineering, they would start their own companies, right? They would take matters into their own hands, so to say. So the make a movement really promoted this kind of notion that people would become doers and makers and dreamers, and they would sort of self-actualize through these kinds of technological visions. And so what we saw rolled out in the years of 2015 and 16 in many ways was really a 
kind of test, a kind of laboratory for some of these later policy uh, changes that uh, really came out around 2017-18 first around the digitization of China itself. So the, the, the 2015 policies around the mass maker movement and mass innovation, I really think of it as a, and this is very typical for Chinese government, as kind of testing out what would it mean to get people to tinker with technology and in doing so also change society, change education, change social processes. So these earlier policies in 2015 and 16 were a precursor for what we're seeing now around the data-driven governance policies that started popping up around 2017 and 18. The Chinese word for this is um, often uh, so digitization, so that the digitization of, of city life, uh, smart city life, um, uh, I think a better term in English is actually data-driven governance mm -hmm. because the actual technologies and visions to transform both how cities are managed and how life is managed in China is through data analytics and through data gathering. But these recent policies are really an, an extension, so to say, from these earlier policy experiments, so to say, in 2015 and 16. So before we take this to the idea of of politics or of governance, this idea that prototyping can be can be done in that in that at that level. I have to wonder, I mean, if I were say sitting on the ground in another city, I'd say maybe, you know, in, in the year after Li Keqiang's speech, I might point to Shenzhen and say, well, it's all well and good for Shenzhen. I mean, it already has so many natural advantages. Already, you know, there are uh, so many industrial design firms. There are so many components readily available to absolutely anything for any kind of hardware you might undertake to make. Not all cities have this. Shenzhen already sits on top of the entire electronics uh, supply chain and value chain, really, in China. So, of course, you can be a prototyper. You can be a maker in Shenzhen. That, that doesn't apply to every other city. Wouldn't there be some pushback to this? Yeah, and I think in many ways that's exactly right. Uh, I think actually often the question that people ask, oh, how can we just replicate Shenzhen or replicate Silicon Valley is, is exactly a problematic or the wrong question, exactly for what you just argued, Kaiser, that um, you can't do the same kind of technological experimentation everywhere. And there's um, a very specific reason to why Shenzhen came to be seen as that unique kind of laboratory at scale and why it was articulated as such and celebrated as such. And uh, for that, we have to uh, look at, and we, we talked about it briefly just earlier, right? It's the, the, histories, the history of Shenzhen, the 1980s, how it became declared a special economic zone by Deng Xiaoping, um, the first kind of laboratory in China to see what it would look like to move beyond socialist market processes and incorporate things like privatization, entrepreneurship, foreign direct investment. What would that look like in China and the kinds of social change that was necessary to implement actually that post-socialist market economy? So Shenzhen in many ways, um, even though it wasn't on the radar um, on people's radar for quite some time in terms of it being thought of as high tech or technology innovation, what it looks like today really is contingent on these um, history on this on this history, right? On it be, being declared yeah. sort of a, a, not just an economic laboratory but also a social laboratory in many ways. Yeah, and, and if I were feeling especially uncharitable, I might actually point out to primarily. Hey, isn't this a little bit like encouraging everybody to smelt iron in their backyard? I mean, not everybody is going to produce uh, quality iron, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Because Shenzhen is a special economic zone didn't just mean experimentation with economic processes and sort of allowing people to be entrepreneurial. It also demanded or rested on various forms of labor exploitation. And actually, a lot of foreign companies, of course, moved there because the labor laws were much more lax in Shenzhen, right? So this is why 
foreign right. companies, you know, think of the early tech companies, HP, like why they outsourced some of their manufacturing there was exactly because they could exploit some of these loopholes, right? So even though Shenzhen was celebrated as suddenly this technological hacker paradise in 2012, 13, 14, people often forgot that that paradise, so to say, the sort of, you know, Shenzhen was really thought of as sort of a next frontier, rested on the labor of generations of migrant workers. And people also didn't really think of the consequences of what would it mean to celebrate uh, China as, as another frontier of technological innovation, like that language of frontier making doesn't just have a colonial ring to it. <laughs> that very sort of promise of the next frontier, as I argue in the book, then also allowed and sort of um, legitimized various forms of contemporary labor exploitation, especially labor exploitation in actually the creative industry itself, rather than just the factories. So to move this now into the, the level of, of government, I, I think that something that's always fascinated me is that, and it's not really talked about enough, I think, is just the extent to which China, to a great degree, remains. And you know, it's past its peak, but it has been since the late 1980s, a deeply technocratic polity, right? Uh, if you were to look in, say, the any time from the mid-90s on until really around the rise of Xi Jinping, the Politburo Standing Committee was utterly dominated by technocrats. The The Central Committee was dominated by technocrats. The you know, mayors or, uh, or party secretaries in the provinces or governors, all just so heavily technocratic. I well, I always think that 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 the technocratic flavor has them reaching immediately uh, toward technocratic analogies that they find further down. You know, like like this that I can see why it would appeal to them. I remember I, I was working at Baidu, and I often worked with the CEO Robin Lee, who was himself trained as an engineer, uh, on speeches. And and in one uh, that he gave, it had no input whatsoever from me. I was just in the audience listening to him. But I always, you know, took careful notes about what he said. He talked about something that he really admires in the way that the Communist Party gets things done. He says that it's a principle that the party has in common with software developers. Mm-hmm. In fact, today I was at Intel uh, and doing a bunch of interviews with with very senior people at at Intel uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, in, in Chandler, Arizona. And uh, what was really interesting was they said the same thing. They talked about how uh, they like to take a problem and break it down into the smallest bite-sized chunks that can be accomplished by individuals or by small teams and then sort of reassemble it. You know, you can take the most intractable seeming problem and if you break it down into small enough pieces, you know, subroutines or whatever that you need, you can, you can get it all done. And I heard this twice from two separate people today in, in interviews that I was doing that um, idea that government departments should, operate like engineering departments is is an idea it goes back to you know really the 1980s i mean Shen was saying mm. stuff like that uh your book argues that there's a kind of maker or startup or entrepreneurial mindset that's now very much a part of the party's ethos can you unpack that a bit and give some examples of that and, and connect it to if it, if you think that it does connect to the technocratic nature of of the Chinese Communist Party since reform and opening. Yes, it definitely connects. But I also think there's some interesting changes that are happening to how uh, governance, specifically with technology, has been unfolding um, since Xi Jinping. So I think, right? Oh, for sure. So for I mean, sure. I think yeah. I I worked as an intern intern for Intel for many years when I was a PhD student. And uh, so what, what you just mentioned in terms of um, engineers thinking about prototyping on even a subroutine level and how that, you know, even then makes a company and corporation work like Intel is very familiar to me. In fact, one of the most interesting things for me doing my research in Shenzhen for several years was talking to Intel engineers on the ground. Mm. Uh, who worked very closely, actually, with people 
in industrial design, people often associated with copycat production or Shanghai in Chinese, um, which was, of course, you know, not what sort of the official rhetoric at Intel was at all. Intel was um, trying to present itself as completely removed from that <laughs> um, partially illicit experimentation with technology. But a lot of the people I met at Intel at that time, they thought of themselves also as hackers, as, as people committed to this kind of project. And there were a lot of collaboration, a lot of collaborations with people in Shenzhen at the time. So just sort of as a footnote, but yes, I think what I argue for in terms of this appropriation of a kind of endorsement of citizens or even demand of citizens to lead an entrepreneurial life is an extension of a technocratic polity, a technocratic engineering solution-oriented mindset, this belief that you just outlined also amongst mm. Intel engineers you, you mentioned, right, that by designing technology, we can change society. If we solve technological problems, we solve societal problems. Now, what is very interesting about some of the recent changes in China's technology-driven governance processes is that this technocratic mindset is accompanied by an ideology that we often sort of associate, I think, with a Western neoliberal kind of model. And so let me just explain it a little bit because mm. neoliberal always sounds a little bit jargony. So we often think of the United States, for instance, through a meritocratic value system, right, that people... Um, are called upon to uh, work hard, realize their dreams, and by doing so, they can not only lead better lives, but they also build America, right? And build sort of an American society that's that's fundamentally heroic and, and sort of optimistic. And we often think of this right. as operating through people's self-initiative. So the state kind of takes a step back and it's people who make that American dream or who make that techno-optimistic future of America happen. So we often don't think of China that way at all, right? Um, China has a very strong state. It's very often associated with various forms of authoritarian leadership. And we think of the state really as uh, very tightly controlling both societal but also technological developments. Now, what is very interesting about these recent shifts in Chinese governance is that technology is very strategically used to govern different segments of the population in different ways. Right. So while some people might be very tightly controlled and surveilled, like people who don't, who are labeled terrorists or who are labeled as low quality citizens, think of migrant workers or certain minorities. You know, I'm in Yunnan right now. And so I think a lot about um, how minorities here are governed quite differently than a tech elite, for instance, in Shanghai and Beijing. So, so this kind of entrepreneurial sure. mindset um, has been used in, in governance processes, I think, in China to really also um, experiment with how different segments of the population are governed differently and to call upon certain citizens to be these kinds of entrepreneurial change makers that the nation would be very proud of, that they would, you know, write about um, in their news media, that they would present when it comes to Belt and Road Initiative type projects, people who they could quote unquote export, export as these sort of promising uh, citizens who implement the Chinese dream um, and who are called upon to innovate, right? Who are called upon uh, to do their own thing, so to say, as long as that thing that they do is not reaching into political experimentation, but remains focused on economic and technological experimentation. But in comparison to someone like, you know, a person in Xinjiang or a minority in Yunnan, these people sort of thought of as entrepreneurial change makers are given a fair amount of freedom and they don't get that they don't get state support. So many of the people I've interviewed over the last 10 years and I've worked very closely with who are entrepreneurs and startups and sort of the, the technological elite, they complain to me a lot because they in terms of not getting state support, right? They're like, we don't see the state in that sense, right? We are really asked 
to be these kinds of self-actualizing change makers that you also see in America. That's what the government wants us to be. You, you've verged toward this, and I think it's a really, really interesting point where there's maybe an expectation from people who aren't familiar with China. I mean, this idea that you know China does labor under this oppressive authoritarian regime and somehow that that should extinguish the joy or the optimism that they feel toward technology. But, you know, I think anyone who's, you know, even glancingly familiar with the, the tech and entrepreneurship landscape in China knows that it's quite different. There's a very different attitude about technology. Uh, you've talked about this in, in your book about how the Chinese leadership sought to really, you know, deliberately instill, I mean, in your words, optimism, positivity, and happiness through technology. And, you know, Honestly, you know, my sense from years working in China in tech companies like Yoku and Baidu was that there was a kind of feedback loop with that too, that the kind of buoyancy and optimism that came of seeing technology and, and the quality of life both together sort of advancing in lockstep. Um, actually, it fueled enthusiasm for, for participating in technological creation. It gave it, you know, greater cultural cachet. It, of course, it gave it material rewards too. Um, if not, you know, to get actually rich, then at least to make a good living as a as a coder, right? Um, it was something you know that then parents came to embrace. Uh, children started to aspire to to mm. be you know that those as you say self actualized change makers. Um, and so I feel like in any society, the attitude that you have toward technology matters a lot, mm. and and. Somehow in the West, and and you've you've laid out the very very clear path from the the disillusionment of of the two thousand seven two thousand eight financial crisis on down. Um, we are not in that place anymore in the West. A, a lot of it, I mean, outside of small pockets in Silicon Valley and whatnot, there isn't that kind of techno optimism widespread in our culture today. Whereas in China, I feel like it's still very much there, in spite of the revolt against nine nine six, in spite of the you know the lying flat movement, as it were. It, it still seems to be a society infused with techno-optimism. Do you think that that's true, first of all? And do you think that matters? I think that really matters. And I'm so glad that you're bringing up how important it is to understand how attitudes and feelings towards technology really are significant for us to understand how technology is then changing education and even governance structures. You know, we often tend to look at things like GDP growth, you know, economic development or the number of patents or the number of products that come out of a region to assess, is it uh, economically successful? Is it innovative? But I think what is really important and what we often overlook are these feelings and these attitudes about technology that really shape how uh, a society and even down to parental decision-making that you just mentioned, right? How that shapes um, how technologies um, are then legitimized as enablers of various forms of societal change and not always in good ways, not always in good ways, of course, right? So mm -hmm. um, what I really try to convey in the book as well is that there's various forms of technological control in China that don't necessarily always take the shape and form of top-down authoritarian control, but a form of control that actually operates through these positive attitudes and feelings associated to technology. So let me just briefly unpack it because it might seem counterintuitive. You right. know, we might we might think, oh, but isn't technology if it, you know, if we if we get people to innovate and people are happy about that, isn't that just a good thing, you know? So let me just unpack a little bit why I talk about this sort of creating a good feeling about technology inherently can also be a form of control. So there is this Chinese term that, uh, Kaiser, you are, you, you're very familiar with, I'm sure, Liang, which is uh, translates into English as... Positive this, energy, as this, yeah. Something like a positive feeling or positive energy, right? And the government, it's actually a citizen-driven term, right? This was an internet term that was very widely used 
to describe and encourage positive online commentary among citizens, to kind of encourage each other, to support each other. And the government, which is, you know, what happens so often and what happened also with the maker movement, appropriated this term uh, to basically ask of people, especially in moments of crisis, and this is particularly pronounced right now during the recent lockdowns again in China. It, it was very vivid for me during the Shanghai lockdown, asking of citizens to display and enact a positive attitude on behalf of the state, on behalf of the nation, uh, rather than complaining, rather than pointing to what doesn't work well. And so this kind of demand to be happy, to be positive in a moment of crisis and anxiety is a form of suppression in that sense, that no other feelings are allowed, no other forms of critique are allowed. The only feeling that is quote-unquote allowed is one that is positive, not just about what the government might be doing in this moment of a lockdown, but about the nation as a whole. And so in the book, I sort of trace how technology itself became enrolled in this project of associating the nation with these positive feelings, right? And technology, again, historically uh, being associated with such positive values also in the West, even though, as you just you know, Kaiser, you just mentioned this is hardly a possibility now in the West, you know, like people are very critical of, of Silicon Valley these days. And yet, even in the West, a lot of people hold on to technological promise, right? AI, artificial intelligence, despite all the criticism of surveillance, is still seen as something that will accelerate uh, economic development and will bring about sort of a form of positive uh, control in that sense that we can manage our own lives better, right? Um, and so in the book, I trace basically how these attachments of positive feelings that still exist with us in the West today as well are circulating between China and the United States and are very strategically used by powerful elites, no matter if they're sitting in the tech industry, in Silicon Valley, investors or government officials, to get people to think in positive ways about their own decision-making processes. Let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, and, and coming back to, to Shenzhen, you've talked about Shenzhen and its rise as having been co-produced. And uh, you talk about that in terms not only of Western capital, but also of sort of Westerners' participation. How, how important was that? How necessary was that to... Shenzhen's development. I mean, obviously, it played a part with so many people doing their manufacturing there and so forth, with so many, you know, the Shenzhen ODMs and, and whatnot. Yeah, what was so, in some ways, strange about this sudden or fascinating, we might say, what was so fascinating about this sudden image of Shenzhen as a newly innovative space that had somehow made itself into a hacker paradise by being different from Silicon Valley or even separate from Silicon Valley. What was so fascinating about that story was that people sort of pretended as if Shenzhen had not been in the 80s and 90s produced as, a, as, a, as an economic hub because of the West's investment, right? Right. And so... Um, this co-production of Shenzhen and its rise as a tech innovation hub, of course, then goes back to the 80s and 90s, right? That already Shenzhen in the 90s was uh, fundamentally a transnational project, an international project that uh, rested on foreign direct investment, not only from the United States and Europe, but also, of course, um, Hong Kong and Taiwan. And you mentioned these contract manufacturers that were really crucial to build Shenzhen, right? But co this, this co-production is really important for us to understand because we often think of uh, innovation as something that is, let's say, American innovation is, you know, there's often this notion that American innovation is different from, let's say, Chinese innovation. And people would ask, so what is unique about the Chinese version of it? And what this question often precludes us from seeing is that no matter if it's American innovation or Chinese innovation, it rests on people circulating through these networks of technology production. It rests on people 
circulating through various um, educational initiatives. Right. And by educational initiatives, I mean things like even pitch contests, you know, or um, startup networks that really cut across regions. So in the book, I argue that we really cannot understand China's rise as uh, a high-tech sort of hacker paradise and the articulation thereof without also understanding how uh, American tech production and Silicon Valley was shifting at the same time because they're so deeply intertwined. Even though we tend to think of these regions and and especially think of technology innovation often as so deeply separate. And I think this this comes back to how we think about innovation. We often think about innovation as that's attached to like a single author, right? A creator. Um, often when we think about sort of the heroic hacker or tech entrepreneur, what comes to mind as sort of these charismatic sure, of course. figures. Let's say um, Steve Jobs is, is, of course, a classical example, right? We think of that sort of innovation attached to sort of this charismatic or sometimes even problematic kind of um, male figure, right? And and we don't really think how that yeah. even... Elon Musk. Elon Musk, yeah, Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, we often tend to look much less at the kind of processes in terms of labor or networking that are necessary, not just within the place, but also across regions that makes that sort of creation possible. In this conception of Shenzhen as a kind of notional hacker's paradise, I find I used to read a lot. There was kind of a fetishization of this Shanghai culture, this idea mm-hmm. that uh, it all grew it, it sort of directly out of, of Shanghai, that Shanghai was sort of the, the progenitor to this all. That never struck me as entirely convincing, but Shanghai clearly had some role to play. I'm wondering if you can help us to, to sort of understand how much of a role and how people either understate or overstate that role. Yeah, I, I, fetishization of Shanghai is something that uh, was really important for me to unpack. And let me maybe use a slightly different term here, Kaiser. Um, also, since you just had another episode with Andrew Liu about Orientalism, maybe I can go there a little bit for, for our listeners to sort of unpack how this fascination with Shanghai, um, which is this Chinese term for copycat production, but also for a kind of technology counterculture in Chinese manufacturing, how that fascination actually rested on an image of China that presented China as other, as still somehow lagging behind the West. So just to, to back up a little bit, so Shanghai, as I just mentioned, is, is was often sort of just a Chinese term for copycat production. And people would even, like also in China, would talk about it in very negative terms. It was something to be embarrassed about copycat production in China was often seen by both the government and by Chinese citizens as an example for why China was still not as modern as the West. And then what happened in 2012, 13, 14, or a little bit earlier than that, is that especially a lot of people active in this kind of hacker maker tech scene in Europe, the United States, but also in other regions, um, they suddenly began celebrating Shanghai and Chinese copycat production in manufacturing as a counterculture at scale and as crucial, actually, for Chinese tech innovation. And so what what was fascinating to see, though, at that time, that as people were celebrating Shanghai or copycat production, they would argue what was so unique about Shanghai was that it was messy, that it wouldn't be um, good at these kinds of design type um, innovations that you saw coming out of, let's say, a city like Berlin or Silicon Valley itself, that it was a kind of more bare bones form of innovation that was attached to tacit knowledge, to close knit networks, a kind of tech innovation that they would um, have an easy time entering exactly because it was messier, not quite as developed yet, still somewhat lagging behind. Mm-hmm. And this sort of notion of Shanja on the one hand, Shanja on the one hand being fascinating 
and being a sort of counterculture at scale, while at the same time also being less modern and less developed, is really, so there's a seeming contradiction there, right? How can it be on the one hand, newly innovative and modern and, and yet still framed as somehow not as good and lagging behind the West, right? So I, be, I was really interested in, in what this fetishization, as you called it, Kaiser of Shanghai actually did. And what I, what I saw it doing is that it really framed China through these sort of Orientalist terms or very similar to how China and other regions have historically often been framed by the West as somehow not as developed, as somehow in need of Western interventions. So a lot of the hackers and, and maker, artists, designer type people who came to Shenzhen, they framed Shanghai as a place that allowed them to intervene in China. And also they framed, positioned themselves as uniquely capable to level up Shanghai, to level up Shanghai ah, yeah. into something that was a true startup culture or a true maker culture. I think you, you've characterized that perfectly. I mean, that's present definitely in, you know, Bunny Huang, maybe, uh, for sure, people who wrote about it back then. You know, I, I think part of it, though, is it's in the term itself. Shanghai has a kind of, you know, because what is Shanghai? It's like a, a mountain bandit lair, right? Uh, right. And it, it has a romance to it, right? <laughs> it has a certain yeah. kind of yeah. um Countercultural, anti-authoritarian, living outside the confines of polite society, it, it is transgressive in a way, and it's kind of sexy. And I, I understand the fetishization of it, so I, I don't, I'm, I don't yes. think I should. Yeah. I don't condemn people for it. Yes, no, I, I, I do understand the fascination with it completely. It's what draws us into technology, right? It's, it's, it's often, you know, one of the reasons why. I myself, you know, have a background in, in computer science and design. As a young person, I was really drawn to digital technology because I, too, associated with it a kind of anti-authoritarian commitment, a transgressive kind of potential. And I've been thinking a lot about this, especially being here in Yunnan right now. I've been rereading re the anthropologist James C. Scott's work on Zomia, on the art of yeah. not being governed. Uh, Yunnan is like one of the regions, right, for Scott's analysis of Zomia, so a region of hill people, as he called it, who escaped the reach of the state. And um, the question is to which degree there is still escape possible, no matter in which region we are in, you know, United States or China or elsewhere. It's become much harder. And I think the fascination with Shanghai was for sure that people we're really committed to enabling change through technology. You know, you mentioned Bunny Huang, who is a good friend, and uh, Bunny Huang, David Lee, Eric David Pan, Lee. Um, Monica Shen, Vicky Xie, a lot of people, Naomi Wu, right? A lot of people I met um, in Zhenzhen were excited about Shanghai because it pushed back against there's just one version of technology and that's maybe what Silicon Valley tells us to do. Uh, there's other ways of thinking about technology and there's other ways of implementing it. And that's truly exciting. That's also why so many people with a feminist commitment were really interested in the maker movement, right? Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I was fascinated with it myself, right? So I think it's really important for us to not condemn these um, hopes and commitments to change, but um, to actually take them seriously and then maybe say, well, technological change might not be the only way to go about political change, right? It often requires, or it always requires so much more than just a technological fix, right? But I think the, the, the notion of giving people actually hope and optimism is, is a really important one, especially in moments where there's a feeling that there is no longer any escape, right, in so many parts of the world. <laughs> Sylvia Lindner, what a fun and insight-packed conversation. And uh, I, I cannot recommend your book more highly. Please get out there, uh, get it. You know, there will be some people who will find it to be a little academic, but you know, I, I just urge you, read on. <laughs> it's it, it rewards. It very much rewards it. The ideas are big and profound. So please uh, give it a read. It's uh, Again, it's called Prototype Nation. 
Uh, Sylvia, stick around. I want to uh, get to recommendations, and I hope you've got a good one for us. And I'm going to insist that you give us at least one recommendation of an off-the-beaten-path travel place somewhere in Yunnan. So I will, when China finally opens back up and we can all finally get there, uh, you can, we'll know where to go. Meanwhile, uh, let me just remind everybody that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. And if you like the work that we do with this and other shows in the Seneca Network, Please show your support by subscribing to our China Access newsletter. While you're at it, sign up for our business-focused China Edge newsletter. It's free. It comes in the morning, uh, U.S. time anyway. And check out China Edge Live, which is our YouTube show with the formidable Lizzie Lee. And uh, you can just search up China Edge Live on YouTube. You will absolutely dig it. She's just a powerhouse. It's such a great host for that show. Uh, it is coming also soon to your favorite podcast app. All right, Sylvia, on to recommendations. What do you have for us? I have two recommendations, uh, which I'm uh, really excited to share uh, with you and, and, and your listeners. Um, and they actually go together. So oh, one is a science fiction piece by a good friend of mine, the science fiction writer Chen Tiofan. Uh, he's uh, most well-known, I think, to most Western um, audience members, probably through his book, Waste Tight. But Absolutely. what I want to recommend um, is a short story that he uh, released in 2019. In, in English, it's called, In This Moment, We Are Happy. And in Chinese, it's, uh, So similar sort of meaning as, as the, the English, In This Moment, We Are Happy. And it's a wonderful, if, if, if uh, people Google it, search for it online, you can, of course, find the, the Chinese version for the, for the Chinese speaking and reading audience. But there's a really lovely um, English translation um, that um, also has an audio version to it on Clark's World. It's a science fiction oh, fantasy magazine. Yeah. Um, and the audio version is delightful. So I highly recommend it. And what is very unique about this short story is that it's about surrogacy and robots. Oh. And it goes really well with one of my favorite scholarly books on the same topic called Surrogate Humanity, Race, Robots, and the Politics of Technological Futures by Kalindi Wora and Neda Atanasowski. Their book by Neda and Kalindi came out the same year as Chen Tiofan's piece in 2018 <laughs> by Duke University Press. And they talk about um, through a, a series of stories around, about surrogate workers who labor on behalf of humans and tackle these complex issues of labor, the patriarchy, racial capitalism, all the way from sex robots to military drones. And so both Chen Tiofan's piece and Kalindi Vora's and Neda Atanasowski's piece, I think is such a timely topic, what it means to be human, especially in this sort of data-driven world that treats certain bodies as less valuable and aims to once again, you know, I was thinking about the American context of the Supreme Court recently, aims to once again control women and people with uteruses in ways uh, that are different from, from, from others, right? So both, both, both books are really, I mean, both the book and the short story are, are really a delight to read in and of themselves, but also together, I think, uh, really wonderful and complimentary. So Chen Fan, who, who also goes by Stanley Chan, he was my colleague at Baidu for, for a few years. We saw each other a lot. We know we're, we're friends. Oh, that's right. There. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, he was actually one of the very first guests on Seneca, and that was all the way back in the year 2010. So it was almost 13 years that ago that, that we, we had him. Yeah, he's great. Uh, his his work is just intense. Uh, it's great. So that's a fantastic recommendation. And what what a coincidence that it came out the very same year as as the the other book that you recommended. Uh, fantastic recommendations. But I am going to hold you to give me a good off the beaten path place that you've traveled to you and Dan have traveled to in Yunnan in these last three months. Yes. Uh, so happy to do that. I think most people would probably recommend a place uh, in the North of Yunnan, uh, close to the Tibetan borders, which is absolutely, absolutely gorgeous. And I've really enjoyed hiking there around 13 and Bensalan. 
Uh, but I think what I'm going to recommend is uh, the south mm. of Yunnan, where I for, we, this, this is where we first landed, um, a city, the city called Qinghong, which is very close to the Myanmar border. Um, it's a it's a really kind of fascinating city because it's not as touristy. It's it's fairly small scale and it has some of the best food in Yunnan, the best Dai, uh, Shao Kao, um, sort of grilled barbecue type food. And it's it's in contrast to many other cities like uh, Shangri-La or Lijiang. It's really not touristy. So if you just want to see life um, uh, uh, and sort of the daily struggles of what it means to live um, in the southwest of China right now, close to a border, I think Qinghong is such a fascinating place to be and if you want to be sort of in in a remote forest there um i stayed in this fantastic place called yoran tai which was started by a swiss guy a biologist and his taiwanese wife and it's a it's basically they built their own forest in the middle um of oil palm plantations uh so it's a really fascinating project just off the city in Qinghong, if you want to be in nature, I highly recommend that. What a great recommendation. I'm so glad I asked you for that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my recommendation touches on a hobby that I've taken up just in, you know, I guess, the last five years or so. I do Asian archery. Uh, so I have a, a number of bows. Uh, and my favorite bow in my possession right now comes from a Ukrainian company that's based in Kiev. It's called Sarmat Archery. S-A-R-M-A-T, sarmatarchery.com. And not only do they make fantastic bows of all sorts of different Central Asian types, the one that my, my favorite is the Jungar bow. Uh, they also make great arrows, uh, bamboo or, or wooden arrows uh, with all, you know, you can make, they'll custom make them to the draw length and, and to the poundage of your bow. Uh, really great stuff. But you, you also help a Ukrainian company that desperately needs help right now. They are still in business. They are still making, they've got fewer bows than, than typically available, but they're still shipping a lot of arrows. And so I just bought myself a dozen and, uh, and, and eyeing other new bows to, 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 uh, to try out. That's something I really enjoy. So, um, and, and you can help out a struggling Ukrainian co- company while you're at it. Sarmat Archery. Sylvia, what a pleasure. What a real pleasure to talk to you finally. And I'm, I'm so glad that we have you on the uh, the film, which I just saw some edits of early on. And you're great. You're absolutely great. in it. Thank you, Kaiser. It was uh, such a pleasure to be on the show today. And the film crew was amazing. Let me give them a shout out as well, because it was such a fantastic day. Uh, to to talk to them and be interviewed by them and same you know so the it was it was a real delight and yeah can't wait to see the footage of course <laughs> yeah yeah uh, it should be out in the spring the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca network our show is produced and edited by me Kaiser Guo we would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at subchina.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.